visiting a dark diamond in the sky, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. After traveling across much of our inner solar system, Hayabusa 2 is now a hair's breadth from asteroid Ryugu. It won't be long before the spacecraft touches down on this diamond-shaped mystery. Before it does, it will release a tiny lander called Mascot. We'll talk with Hitoshi Kununaka, leader of the Hayabusa 2 mission, and then with Hans-Jörg Dietz, executive board member for space research and technology at the German Aerospace Center. Mars is almost close enough to touch. Okay, not quite, but Bruce Betts is ready to share the great view with us. We begin with senior editor Emily Lakdawalla, who has just accepted a big new job at the Planetary Society. Welcome back, Emily. Tell us about this uh, big new task that you've taken on. You're speaking to the new editor of the Planetary Report. Now, some of the people listening to this show may not be familiar with the Planetary Report, but it's actually a 40-year-old magazine that circulates to about 50,000 people. It's the member magazine for the Planetary Society. It was started in 1980 by Carl Sagan. It was developed by Charlene Anderson, who would later mentor a young uh, planetary science graduate into a science writer. Uh, I'm talking about me, of course. And then it was uh, nurtured into its present state by uh, Jennifer Vaughn, who's now our chief operating officer, and Donna Stevens, who retired last month. It's an honor to be put at the helm of this magazine with such a legacy. It contains a lot of writing by luminaries like Carl Sagan, but also lots of uh, engineers and scientists and astronauts and futurists and space artists. I'm uh, looking forward to carrying its tradition on into the future and maybe uh, bringing it uh, into a little closer alignment with what we do on the web and, and having the website be influenced by the magazine as well. Yeah. I mean, how do you build on this kind of success? Uh, can you be more specific about what you what you hope to do with the magazine? Well, the magazine has always featured uh, the voices of the people actually performing the exploration of our solar system and, and the universe beyond. And I don't plan to change that. I think it's one of the wonderful things that the Planetary Society does, connecting the active space explorers with the armchair space explorers, the, the people who enjoy the fruits of planetary exploration so much. So we will continue to do that. The pages will continue to uh, inform people about what the Planetary Society is doing. And I will continue to feature amazing photos. I'll probably um, start featuring more of the particular kinds of photos I like, which are ones that are dug out of planetary image archives by amateur image processors. So I hope to uh, feature more of those people in the pages. I also have been looking at the catalog of what the Planetary Report, the subject matter that it's featured in the last several years, and I found a few subjects that have gone maybe a little neglected. So I'm going to be featuring some articles on some neglected planets and places in the near future. Well, as a member of the society, as well as an employee, I always look forward to uh, a new edition of the Planetary Report, and I can't wait to see what this uh, new era will bring us, Emily. Uh, Thank you for taking it on. When will we see that new issue, we members? So my first issue will be the September Equinox issue. And I can tell you now that it's going to feature articles on new missions to explore Mercury and the Moon. Very much something to look forward to. And uh, you can learn more, of course, at planetary.org. Thanks, Emily. We'll uh, continue to talk to you about other things around the solar system as well, I hope. Yes, indeed. That's Planetary Society Senior Editor Emily Lakdawalla. And that title now includes her uh, leadership of the Planetary Report. We're moments away from talking with Hitoshi Kuninaka, leader of the Hayabusa 2 mission. Remember Hayabusa? I started calling it the little spacecraft that could. The Japanese mission to asteroid Itakawa faced and overcame challenge after challenge, finally returning a tiny sample of that space rock to Earth. JAXA, the Japanese Space Agency, and its Institute of Space and Astronautical Science learned a lot from that experience. Now, Hayabusa 2 is almost ready to descend to asteroid Ryugu. Hitoshi Kuninaka leads the mission. Professor Kuninaka is also an expert in electric propulsion and plasma engineering, 
and has been deeply involved in development of the ion engines that have driven both Hayabusa explorers across the solar system. He was in Pasadena, California a few days ago for COSPAR, the International Committee on Space Research 2018 Scientific Assembly. He found time in a very busy schedule to spend a few minutes with me for Planetary Radio. It's my pleasure to talk in these programs. It is our great pleasure and honor to have you as a guest on Planetary Radio. So again, thank you very much for taking a few moments out of your time here in Southern California to join us. Hayabusa 2 is now 20 kilometers, maybe 12 and a half miles, That's right. from your target, asteroid Ryugu. It seems to be going marvelously, absolutely perfectly. You must be very proud of your mission. Uh, yeah, thank you very much. But yeah, from now on, we will start the proximity operation, that is the space exploration. And then so that the, uh, we are very nervous and <laughs> to, to go the uh, safety, we can do the uh, safety operation or not. So that the, but the, uh, uh, all of the staff, Hayabusa 2 team, has the, uh, very keen to access to the, uh, such a phase. I'm very proud of them. You have a great right to be, and your mission has attracted worldwide attention. It has been in all of the newspapers here in California, I know, Mm -hmm. and around the world. You probably have seen Dr. Brian May's uh, stereoscopic Uh, images. Yeah, yeah, we are very happy so that a lot of people interested in our space missions. And uh, Brian may uh, make a 3D stereo image. Uh, We are very proud of it. And some of my colleagues at the Planetary Society have also been writing about the mission since before your launch. In fact, even just recently, uh, Jason Davis, he had a piece on July 5th about sample return, which I hope we can talk about in a moment or two, since that is the great goal of this Mm -hmm. mission. But as recently as July 11th, He included in a blog post at planetary.org some of these utterly, I will say it again, spectacular images that are already being returned. What's ahead of us here? You'll be moving in closer soon, right? Uh, Yes, so that present state, uh, we we stay the uh, present position, 20 kilometers apart from the uh, target asteroid. And then so uh, we take a lot of data using the onboard camera and uh, uh, IR instrument, July and August. We get a lot of information about asteroid Ryugu. And then, summarizing the order of data, uh, we will determine the landing location. We select the uh, site of the uh, to deliver, dispatch our uh, separation robotics. And then so that the uh, whole of the uh, identification and determination in the next phase, we will move on to the next phase, that is the proximity operation. And before we go on, you mentioned an IR instrument, and that's an infrared spectrometer, Mm -hmm. I think, Mm -hmm. that you're carrying as one of the instruments on the spacecraft. You're closing into what the next step is, I think, five kilometers from the asteroid? Uh, yes, before the real uh, touchdown operation, we try to descent operation, so to approach to the vicinity of the asteroid to get the uh, more detailed image. When will the spacecraft begin operating autonomously? Because I know that as you get closer to the asteroid, like many missions now, that 40-minute light travel time between us and Ryugu, 300 million kilometers away, you really have to rely on your spacecraft's intelligence. So the previous mission, Hayabusa 1 mission, uh, we have a lot of the failure in the space operation. In the case of the Hayabusa 1, we missed the uh, release of the projectile as at the moment of the touchdown. In that result, so collecting sample is a very, very tiny one, so several milligrams or a microgram. But it worked. <laughs> you, you made it back with that very yeah, small that's sample. Right. Yeah. So that's a kind of the uh, malfunction. We do not make a computer system so precisely. Based on that the uh, lessons are learned uh, in the Hayabusa 2 case, we executed a lot of the simulation in the computer simulation and the machine interface simulation. Mm. And uh, in that sense, uh, we executed a lot of the preparation for the exact touchdown operation. I can tell you that all of us at the Planetary Society, as we followed Hayabusa 1, we really felt it was a heroic mission because it did face so many problems. (laughs) And yet, you made it back with a sample. What has changed? You had all of that data from that first mission. 
I know you made a number of improvements to Hayabusa too. Yes, I am an engineer of the electric propulsion in the uh, ion engine system. So uh, I took charge of the development and operation of the uh, ion engine dedicated for Hayabusa 1 and 2. Uh, during the operation of Hayabusa 1, we experienced a lot of the uh, malfunction in space. So especially uh, as for the ion engine, we had a lot of the uh, interruption of the operation using the ion engine. Our system was not sophisticated. Parallel of the uh, Hayabusa 1 operation, we started the uh, next R&D for our ion engine. In those days, so Hayabusa 2 is not decided. We are focusing on the future application, not Hayabusa 2. In case of the Hayabusa 1 ion engine, thrust force is uh, 8 millinewton. Thrust force is 8 millinewton. The uh, next challenge, uh, we made the uh, 10 millinewton. Uh, so 25% increase yes, in your yeah, thrust. That's right, that's yeah. right. Improved one. Mm-hmm. And then, so w- in that sense, we prepare for our ion engine technology, focusing the future mission. And then after the Hayabusa 1 termination, Japanese government decided to go to the uh, next asteroid sampling mission, that is Hayabusa 2. And then from the year 2011, we apply the uh, new improved ion engine system to Hayabusa 2. Based on the uh, lessons learned of the Hayabusa 1, inbound journey from us to target asteroid from 2014 to 2018 this year. Mm -hmm. So uh, these 3.5 years, so that the perfect operation for the uh, ion engine, so that no interruption of the operation in space. And I read that these ion engines are driven by microwaves, Ah, which is quite innovative. Yes, yeah. We know and are very excited about what ion engines enable spacecraft to do. I'm sure you're familiar with the Dawn mission, Mm -hmm. which is orbiting series, of course. Could you have achieved what Hayabusa 2 and Hayabusa 1 have done or are doing without ion engines if you had had chemical propulsion? Ah, yeah, that's right. The uh, Japanese launch rocket system is a very tiny one, so we do not have the capability to send a large amount of the mass to deep space. We need high-efficient propulsion system. That is electric propulsion ion engines. As for the Japanese case, uh, usage of the ion engine is a unique solution to make uh, round-trip space missions. It is an exciting innovation. You have a number of other innovations that are part of the spacecraft, including how it will be returning data and receiving commands, how it is receiving Mm -hmm. commands from Earth. I know that part of your collaboration with NASA is you're making use of the deep space network. Yeah, that's right. Japan have uh, only communication dish in vicinity of Japan. Communication time is very limited for the uh, deep space operation. On the other hand, NASA has a lot of the dishes in the worldwide. So uh, Goldstone, uh, Madrid, and Canberra, that is a deep space network. Very effective and powerful communication system. Hayabusa and the Hayabusa 2 case was supported by NASA, Mm. or DSN. You mentioned that the Japanese government had said they wanted you to use this new and improved ion engine technology. You only had two and a half years, I believe, from the time you were told, begin to build Hayabusa 2, to when you had to launch this spacecraft, that's an extraordinarily short amount of time to create a spacecraft, isn't it? In Hayabusa 2 case, for the dropping time frame is only 3.5 years. That's a very, very mm. tiny one. That is one of the problem, one of the issue to be solved in those days. So uh, companies, staff, and the JAXA's people are working so hard so that we accomplish the, uh, our system in time for launch. And I was off by a year, but that's still an extraordinarily short period to be able to pull a spacecraft together. I'd like to hear more about some of what you are also carrying on the spacecraft. In particular, these little rovers that are called Maneuver 2. Maneuver 2 and the mascot. Yes. Tell us about Minerva 2, first of all. Uh, original Minerva 1, dedicated for Hayabusa 1 mission, we released the, the uh, Minerva robotics from the spacecraft, but unfortunately we failed to land on the surface of the asteroid Itokawa. At that moment of the release, we take only the one picture from mm. the uh, mother ship Hayabusa, but the uh, Minerva cannot reach to the surface of the asteroid. In the uh, Hayabusa 2, so we have a uh, next trial. So we install the three Minerva 2. Next time opportunity, uh, we want to succeed the yes, uh, landing yes, yes. operation of the uh, Minerva 2. 
And these are actually, they've been called rovers, but they're actually more hoppers, right? Uh, yeah, that's right. Very low gravitational field environment so that they can move by hopping uh, manas. Yeah. How will you take material from the surface where you go, actually from under the surface. You have an impactor. Can you talk about how that will work? One of the lessons learned of the Hayabusa 1 mission, the collected surface material is affected by space weathering effect. Under the ground, we may have very fresh material. The Hayabusa 2 mission, we installed the impactor. We call the small carry-on impactor. It installed the chemical powders. The ones we explored chemical Action, we accelerate the uh, copper bullet. It's almost like an explosion firing a bullet or a yes. shell yes. into the surface. You make a little crater. Yeah, that's right. And is it at that moment that the sample material is blown up into the collector? Uh, no. So uh, that is a relatively dangerous operation. And then so... <laughs> you don't want to be too close. Uh, yeah, yes. So the once the uh, uh, impactor was separated from the mother ship Hayabusa 2, it will take an uh, escape maneuver to go to the another side of the asteroid. And then several tens of minutes later, impact automatically explode. At that moment, maybe a lot of the fragments will be scattered around environment. Some of the fragments may have a very high velocity, so once we have a collision, so <laughs> we have a very serious phenomena. So that the, in order to uh, avoid such kind of the phenomena, so a spacecraft takes the uh, escape maneuver. Tens of days later, fragment will be disappeared. And then mm, so mm-hmm. spacecraft come, come back to the original position, and then so uh, it will search the new crater, and we will take another touchdown operation vicinity of the new craters. Something that struck me when I read that the impactor is made of pure copper, oh, yeah. I remembered, I think, that on the deep impact mission, which impacted mm-hmm. a, a comet, that impactor was also a copper sphere or copper mm-hmm. ball. Uh, yeah, that's right. Why copper? <laughs> that is a very difficult question. Yeah, we use the uh, specific technology, exploded deformation impactor technique. That is the, uh, commonly used the copper material mm. because the uh, copper is easy to expand. Ah, okay. That is a unique metal to apply such kind of technology. So all of this is still ahead of us, and the greatest feat that is still ahead of us is 10 days after this impact, collection of the sample, and then soon after you begin the, the return trip to Earth? Uh, yes, proximity operation of Hayabusa will take the uh, 1.5 years. During that proximity operation, we have a uh, two-month conjunction time frame. Mm, so mm-hmm. in that time frame, we cannot communicate with the spacecraft. So two months rest. First of all, this year, 2018, we want to try to execute two touchdown operations. Uh-huh. And then next year, uh, we will try to the uh, impact operation. And then after that, we will try the third trial of the touchdown. And then end of 2019, spacecraft leave for us. And then the return capsule, re-entry capsule, comes down in Australia, yeah, yes. is collected. What happens with that sample material after that? It, does it go to a lab in Japan? We will take the same manner of the Hayabusa-1 mission. And the first of all, uh, we will search the landing position of the capsule. We fly to there by helicopter, mm. heli-bomb mm-hmm. mission. And then so we will pick up the uh, returned capsule. So after that, we will hire the uh, business jet. And then from Umera, we will take the directory flight from Australia to Haneda. And there to enter into, I'm sure, a very clean lab. Yes, that's right. To begin to examine this material. What are the scientists hoping to discover? Because I know that because of the type of asteroid this is, a type C asteroid. That's right. They are hoping that it will have some very, very interesting materials. Yeah, yeah. This asteroid, Ryugu, is classified to C-type asteroid. C means the carbonaceous chondrite type Asteroid. So the uh, scientists thinking about the uh, it contains the uh, water or an uh, organic material. These are the expected. We are now making the uh, new curation facility in mm. Sagamihara, Japan, to adapt the uh, Ryugu materials. Scientists want to take a signal of the water or an uh, organic material from yes. the uh, collected sample.
Yeah, it's pretty exciting because we really are looking back into the past of our solar system, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and to conditions that may have led to life on Earth. Very exciting. That's right. That's right. Asteroid is the uh, fossil of the uh, solar system. So, uh, a fossil, yes. Yeah. yeah, that's a good way to put it. The Earth material is a lot of the uh, weathering and the temperature effects so that the whole of the material is uh, changed. So uh, asteroid and a comet in the solar system keeps in the ancient situation of the solar system. Yeah. There is one other instrument that I want to ask you about before we talk about your partner in this, the DLR, and that is something that's on the spacecraft that was funded by donations. And I saw there was a show of gratitude. There was a thank you message from you to people who put this there. Can you tell us about this? Uh, so uh, we gather the uh, donation to the Hayabusa 2 mission, and then so uh, we gather the uh, people's name in the uh, digital manner, <laughs> we install the uh, small memory, and then we uh, make a uh, film fish, and then so we, we install the uh, name list. And we, we love sending people's names uh, yeah. across the solar system at the Planetary Society. Was there a camera as well that was supported by, uh, I saw Cam-C? Cam-C, uh, Yeah, Would, that was supported by donations? Uh, uh, yes, uh, that's right, that's right. Based on donation, uh, we developed the uh, Cam-C, the CAMC will take as a touchdown operation. It will take uh, exact touchdown locations. As for the uh, name list of the uh, donated people, that film is installed in the uh, target marker. So uh -huh. we install the five target marker before the uh, touchdown operation. Uh, we release the uh, target marker on the surface of the asteroid. That actually goes to the surface and then helps Hayabusa yeah, too yes. to uh, find the spot. That uh, that's right. Yeah. Uh huh. The list is installed in the target marker, so this list will be landed on the surface of the uh, asteroid. And with any luck, we'll sit there on the surface of that asteroid for mm -hmm. another four billion years. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe, <laughs> if it doesn't hit anything else. This represents something that I know is important to you, and that is the power of a mission like this to inspire, to bring members of the public in, young people especially. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is important to you. Uh, I think so. I have already said to you, so uh, Hayabusa 2 has uh, a lot of the uh, barriers to develop the, uh, the short time duration. It was accomplished by the uh, very young people who are inspired by the story of Hayabusa 1 mission. So uh, we finally succeeded to the uh, uh, Hayabusa 2 spacecraft in time for launch. One of the most delightful things that I think JAXA ISIS has done is uh, I know with Hayabusa uh, there was a little sort of a cartoon character mm -hmm. that was developed uh -huh. that represented the spacecraft and became very popular, right, in, in Japanese uh, society. Mm, I, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> so a uh, commercial movie maker uh, make a lot of the uh, several movies for com commercialize. And then so uh, in the sense, the Hayabusa, uh, one story is uh, very famous in, in Japan. You may know uh, this autumn, we, we have another uh, launch campaign of Pepe Colombo. It is a joint mission between uh, ISA and JAXA. We will send the, uh, our spacecraft to Mercury. Another space program, uh, JAXA, ISAS, is uh, now developing the uh, lunar surface landing mission we call mm. SLIM. Mm -hmm. uh, and then so a uh, future mission, MMX Martian uh, Moon Exploration Program. So sample return from uh, mission from the uh, Phobos or Deimos. So uh, 2020s, uh, we want to realize, deliver our space asset to the solar system from Mercury to Jupiter. So uh, they are our space asset, so JAXA's deep space fleet. Based on that, the, uh, such kind of the uh, swarming technology, uh, mm. we want to investigate solar system. These are ambitious plans. How important is international partnership or collaboration uh, in, in achieving these? That's a very, very important factor. So uh, JAXA is the uh, daughter partner, minor partner. In the other case, uh, with a major integrator or major players of that uh, space mission. In the minor partner case, we deliver small component or uh, separation robotics to the uh, another space agency. In the opposite case, uh, we receive the uh, component from the uh, international agencies and then so we bring the uh, such device to the target that is a collaboration in that case we have a mutual benefit to the 
each countries. If we promote such kind of the international collaboration,、uh, we can make a good relationship between two countries or、mm. many countries, not only space topics, but also whole kind of the、uh, issues. Yes. That is the final goal, I believe.、Yeah. Just one other question, a, a somewhat personal one. You've said that exploration is in the human heart. Does that help to drive your work on this mission and the other missions that are upcoming? From now on, uh, JAXA, uh, not only JAXA, but also whole of the、uh, international,、uh, will go to the next step of the、uh, space exploration program. It will stimulate us and then to encourage the、uh, company's activity and accelerate technology advancement. Space exploration. Will stimulate human being, I believe. But for you personally, you find it stimulating? So, how <laughs>、oh, you said, I, I, I get the. It's、uh, in your heart, you、uh, said. I get the very senior person, <laughs> but the、uh, <laughs> uh, president said,、uh, I, I take the、uh, director general of the ISAS, insti-、uh, ISAS of the JAXA. So,、uh, we want to、uh, encourage our staff of ISAS people and then、uh, expand. So,、uh, This passion to the、uh, Japanese community and the、uh, worldwide. Thank you again very much. It has truly been an honor to speak to you. All of us wish you the greatest of continued success with Hayabusa 2. We look forward to the return of those samples and the great science ahead. Thank you very much. For finally, I, I want to say uh, uh, may the force be with us. <laughs> <laughs> yes, one, one would hope. Hayabusa 2 Project Manager Hitoshi Kununaka on Planetary Radio. Hans-Jörg Dietis was also in Pasadena for the biannual COSPAR Scientific Assembly. This expert in gravitational and other fundamental physics served as director of the German Aerospace Center, or DLR's Institute of Space Systems. He was appointed as DLR executive board member for space research and technology seven years ago. The DLR has worked with partners in France to develop MASCOT, the Mobile Asteroid Surface Scout. A tiny lander that has been carried to asteroid Ryugu by Hayabusa 2. We'll hear more from Professor Ditas about the DLR next week when we'll continue our coverage of COSPAR. Our conversation this week focuses on that little lander that will soon begin its explorations. Professor, welcome. It is、uh, an honor, as I told. Professor Kunanaka, who was sitting in your chair maybe 10 minutes ago. An honor to speak to him, an honor to speak to you, not just about Hayabusa 2, although I hope we can start with that, but about what the agency that you helped to run, the DLR,、uh, the German Aerospace Center,、yeah. uh, what it accomplishes and how it accomplishes it. But first of all, as I said, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure for me as well. Well, Professor Kunanaka, you will be happy to hear, had very nice things to say about their partnership, the <laughs> collaboration、yeah. that they have with you at the DLR. Yeah, yeah. But I know it's, it's not just the DLR, there is at least、uh, one other agency that、yeah. is very involved with what has、uh, come to be this spacecraft that is、uh, part of the Hayabusa 2 package.、Yeah. Very much as Cassini carried Huygens、yeah. to Titan,、uh, Mascot is being carried to Ryugu. Yeah, that's right.、Uh, this is a trilateral partnership for this、uh, Hayabusa 2 spacecraft. And in particular, the lander, where we talk about it's, ma- it's called the name is Mascot. We do it together with our French f- partners. And、uh, so to say, it's a Japanese European project. Nevertheless, we have as DLR、um, a long term、uh, partnership with JAXA as a strategic, partner- a strategic partnership where we try to.、Um, Do a lot of other projects as well. It's not only exploration. But this specific project, Mascot,、uh, where we built the lander for Hayabusa 2, is done together with our partners in the Centre National Etude Spatiale in, in France. CNES? Did、yeah. I get it correct? Okay. <laughs> we, so we call them CNES, yeah. <laughs> okay.、Um, Mascot, the Mobile Asteroid Surface Scout. Tell us about this little spacecraft. Yeah, the idea came up、um, after Hayabusa 1,、uh, when the Japanese uh, asked us、uh, maybe to bring up another spacecraft at that time. It was a national project, as you may be higher traction at that time. It was in 2011 when there was a decision made by the Japanese space agency. And as you might remember, that was the time when they had this terrible earthquake and, and this、yes. uh, the Fukushima earthquake. 
It was becoming a, coming up a, a national symbol was Hayabusa one and the Hayabusa two became a very important mission. And at that time, we had a discussion in Europe and in Japan how we can make it together. Uh, but the problem was it should be a very small lander only. Ten kilogram was the maximum mass. Tiny. This is really tiny. A very stuff. low mass. Uh, more and more it, so to say, two shoe boxes. We <laughs> at that time we called it the shoe box experiment, and not more. And um, the question was, what to do? Is it possible? And mm -hmm. so we did studies together with French partners, and we said, okay, we can do it. Uh, it was clear that the lender is not massive. It had no active landing mechanism. It's just passive. We throw it out of the space, but <laughs> it must land. Approach slowly. Really carefully, otherwise we could be rebounced, and um, this was a risk. At escape velocity, yeah, yeah, yeah. escape velocity on Ryugu is not much. It's not much. It's some centimeters a second only. <laughs> uh -huh. So you have to approach very carefully, and if you have no landing um, uh, mechanism, if you have no dampers on board, as we did it for, for example, in on landing on Churyumov Gerasimenko, where we had active systems, dampers, anchors, yes, and the, uh, yes. many, many ideas to fix it on on the on the surface. It's not the case here. Mm. So we land mascot completely passively. It falls down, and the hope is oh, not the hope, but we know <laughs> it's slow enough not to become rebounced. And when it lands. You don't know what side it's going to come down on. It's yeah. roughly cube-shaped yeah. or rectangular, but you can. It will right itself. Yeah, there is a mechanism that we can turn it upside down or downside up. Uh -huh. There is a clear downside for the um, spectrometer on board. It's called the micro omega. It's a French contribution. Mm. It's a um, um, an instrument where we can. Um, get information about the surface on which we land. And then there's a mechanism in where you can catapult it up. It's just an extender motor. It's a tiny thing because uh, escape velocity is small, gravity mm -hmm. is small, so it needs a tiny force to bring it up. And it shouldn't be too much just to give them a, a push to hop on the surface. Is yeah. this just a, a, a mass that moves inside yeah, the spacecraft? It's a, it's a small Mars on an extender motor, yeah. but it's 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 really small. It's maybe a mass of um, some grams only, 100 grams. Like this is just enough, and you move it fast, and then it hops up. I have a wind-up toy at home yeah. that works exactly the same way. It has a little eccentric weight. Yeah. You wind it up, and then it just kind of bounces across. Yeah, the yeah, yeah, it's the same. But the in that case, it bounces a much longer distance. Hmm. So it goes up, it falls down very slowly, and touches the ground a little bit distant. That's why we hope that we can do um, in a time where we're on the surface, where we act, where we can operate actively on the surface, roughly um, maybe three different sites. But these yeah. these are defined uh, by accident. It falls down. It ah. cannot be. Uh, you can't say uh, like Curiosity yeah, rover. Let's yeah, go over there yeah, and look at yeah, that yeah, rock. No, no, you no, have to get lucky. A, no, no, no. Yeah, we have to be lucky. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a fairly short lifespan because, like Huygens, we mentioned Cassini yeah. Huygens. You have no solar panels, so once you run out of battery power, that that's the end. That's the end. Yeah, indeed. That's the, what's a compromise to make it small. Yeah, yeah. If only batteries, and if they are down. We are done. Yeah. So what is the science that you hope to accomplish? You mentioned mm. this uh, instrument provided by the French, yeah. which is a spectrometer. Yeah, it's a spectrometer. Yeah. And we have um, an, a magnetometer on board. Mm. I think it's also important to know about the um, um, magnetic field or get some in magnetic field information. At least. Uh, this has been built by the Technical University in Braunschweig in Germany. And then there are two, two other instruments. There is um, a radiometer, a camera. Yeah. It's, it's, it's actually charming to think of this little box loaded with scientific instruments bouncing or hopping across the surface of this mm -hmm. world mm -hmm. that has been out there for billions of years and is now only being visited for the first time, as far as we know, by anything intelligent. H how is the signal returned to Earth? Yeah, this is only possible via the orbiter. We have a, a, a weak communication line, so mm. to say, uh, to the um, to the orbiter, and from the orbiter, then it's transferred to Earth. Again, like Huygens. 
Again, yeah, like Huygens, it's the same. It's the same idea. You can do it only via the orbiter because, I mean, otherwise you would need a, a very strong antenna, a very strong um, antenna system on board of the spacecraft. Then it's not the case. This is another compromise. We made a lot of compromises yeah. Yeah, to make it small. To. Yeah. The science that may come from this, we talked a little bit about this with yeah. uh, Professor yeah. Kununaka, yeah. but uh, you are a scientist, yeah. and I'm yeah. just, uh, I know you have a lot of colleagues who are very excited to be yeah. visiting this Type C asteroid. Yeah, I mean, the question is always, if you land, what is most important to measure? And of course, I mean, if you land on an asteroid, there's the big question is, is there any information with respect to what happens in uh, in the early time of our solar system? Because we think that these are the relics of the early times of our solar system, these asteroids. So the question is, is there uh, some information about how life could come up in our solar system? Mm -hmm. is, are there organic molecules? We can find them. So we have to look for that. Is there some information about water? Is there water? The question is still one of the big questions we have in our solar system, how the water came to Earth, how so much water came to Earth, and why is it only on Earth and, and nowhere else? These are the questions. And if you bring up instruments on a, on a body like that, it's always a question of priority, mm. what is most important to measure. I think the most important thing is if you land somewhere, you have to measure where you have where you have been landed. And this is, might be one of the key questions also for Huygens. Huygens landed, but there was no information where we really landed. Mm. We only have, so to say, uh, information um, on on other channels, but we couldn't, we couldn't measure not that directly. Not directly anyway, so, yeah. And you see, this is, it's not a disadvantage. It was one of the major missions in space uh, we did in the last... 50, 60 years, it was landing on Huygens, on, on, on Titan by Huygens. Yeah. But um, at the end, we have no information where we landed on. And there are many, many other informations, quite interesting informations. So I think the most important information if you land on, a, on an asteroid is where we have landed, how it looks the material. Uh, uh, Ryugo, uh, the Japanese um, um, uh, selected this Ryugo as a C-type asteroid. Mm -hmm. So C-type means uh, contrites on the more organic material, what we expected. The last one was not a, a C-type. It was an S-type asteroid. That this was, was the Itokawa. Itokawa. So there is definitely a different material. That's what we know now. So now we expect different materials. So material is important. Um, all the other informations, of course, as well. But I think the most important thing is the material. Of this of this asteroid. Another thing is, and that's what we learned from the first pictures. It's a very dark mm. asteroid, very very dark. Only 1.5 percent of albedo. That means uh, it's a piece of coal, so to say, <laughs> where we land. Not not from the material, as it looks like. Just a piece of dark. It hardly reflects any. A light piece of all. coal in the night. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that, but that means that it's absorbing a lot of energy. And it's hot there. We expect surface temperatures of roughly 90 degrees Celsius. Really? Yeah. I had no idea yeah. that it would be that high. Yeah, it's My high. Goodness. That's what I learned now from mm. these first uh, pictures. So the, the, the selection of the landing point in the next weeks is one of the most important things, that it becomes not too hot on surface. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah. You mentioned uh, Comet Gerasimenkov, uh, 67P. That brilliant success at uh, at the comet, which we are still getting science out of. How does this mission promise to complement that? I mean, here we are at this Type C, mm. a carbonaceous uh, mm. chondrite uh, asteroid. Mm. We were at a comet, which we also now know had water mm. and uh, organic materials. Uh, it certainly appears that, at least in the last... 10 or 20 years, we've learned a great deal more about these building blocks of the solar system. Yeah, but I think the most astonishing for me is that they all look different. Hmm. Uh, if you look to the big planets, they all look completely different. Yes. And I mean completely means they are really, we, can, we can't understand this different behavior really. So up to now, we have no idea. The same with the moons of these planets. Imagine when um, NASA landed on moon in 19... Uh, 69 the first time at the end 
we had a feeling that the moon could be a bit boring object in a case. I mean, it's not boring, uh, but um, imagine all the moons of all planets looked at. We have given up. We would have given up, I guess. I was okay. It's a, <laughs> it's not. Yeah. So, yeah. but they all look completely different. I mean, if you look to the icy moons on, on on Jupiter, if you look the moons on Saturn, they all look different. So we have a variety, a large, large variety of all these bodies, and the question is why. This, for me, is the biggest puzzle. Why they all look all different? And now we have seen one comet in detail, but this is only one. And the question is. Does the next one look the same? We have no idea. The big surprise was the shape. Now we have seen Ryugu the first time on, on June, and it looks like a diamond. It's regularly shaped, more or less. I mean, there are some craters in. And, well, compared but, to 67P, it would. That, yeah, that, but it's a completely form. different shape. And yeah. why is that? So I think <clears throat> we have many, many information we get by visiting these kind of bodies, and um, we can only take out the selection of them. And these are not by accident, but the selection is taken by many um, uh, other questions like how we can reach them, is it easy or not? But I think this is the most important. Then we have the types of the, the C and S type. But if we then select them, this is indeed by accident. And we have roughly 750,000 of these hmm. objects in our solar system. And we take out one and the shape looks surprising. The question is, if we look for the next one, is it surprising as well? And I think this is the, the big puzzle. We need a, uh, we need a larger sample. It's, a, yeah, it's we, dangerous to do science on a small sample size. It's relatively, I, it's, it's, it's dangerous to say, but it's relatively easy to land on a, on a, as a small body. It's much easier than to land on a planet. Mm. So that was the idea of having these small landing systems that we can do it, maybe repeat it, having always this kind of landing systems. And then we can investigate and then maybe we can find more information of more bodies. This is now the second time that we land on an asteroid. Mm -hmm. The information baseline is not as big as, yeah. as we would like to have. The history of 50, 60 years in space, 60 years, is um, that we learn by each of these missions and we get more questions by any missions as we had before. It's good and it's good and bad. The nature of science. Do you see any reason? Do you expect to be surprised by what we learn about uh, Ryugu? Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think. I mean, there's a lot of things we like to be confirmed of. I mean, we say, "Okay, this was a theory," and we, I mean, this is also nice to see that theories are not completely nonsense. Uh, we will see a lot of new things, as we have seen it from Itokawa. The Japanese has uh, found them. Uh, they brought back one milligram of material and detected more than 120 minerals in this one milligram. This was unexpected. One would expect a small body like that has a more or less homogeneous material yes. and is not a composition of many, many minerals. And uh, this is what they learned there. So I expect many new information, many new questions. Hans-Jörg Dietis of the German Aerospace Center, or DLR, talking with me at the Coast Bar Scientific Assembly. Back with Bruce in moments. Time for What's Up? On Planetary Radio, the chief scientist for the Planetary Society is on the line once again. That's Bruce Betts. Welcome back. Thank you. Very, very exciting week, isn't it? It is. The time has come. I've been talking about it, but now it's here. Mars opposition on July 27th, opposite side of the Earth from the Sun, and closest approach on July 31st. This is the closest approach since 2003, so therefore it'll be brighter and bigger than it has been, brighter than everything in the, every natural thing anyway, in the night sky except for the moon and Venus, which is also up. So we got that going on. You can learn lots of details and all about oppositions and close approaches on our website, planetary.org, where I've got a blog talking all about the Mars opposition closest approach, what else you can see. But there's also a total lunar eclipse, which I also talk about in the blog. 
And that occurs uh, for those of you in most of Europe, Africa, Western and Central Asia, the Indian Ocean, and Western Australia. So not us. Sorry, Matt. <laughs> Unless you want a road trip. I'm always ready for a road trip. But here's what's even super cooler is it'll be near bright Mars in the sky. So you'll have reddish moon and reddish Mars hanging out near each other in the sky, uh, which is not coincidental, as you can find out in my blog. And then also, so Mars is rising at opposition. It's rising around sunset and setting around sunrise. And so Mars is in the east in the early evening. And then if you just swing across the sky, across the sky, you'll see Saturn looking kind of bright and yellowish. And then farther over, Jupiter, super bright, usually brighter than Mars, but not right now. And then Venus, even brighter over in the west. And they nicely fall along a line, proving once again that we orbit in a uh, relatively flat solar system in terms of the big object orbits. Whew, it's exciting, man. It's really <laughs> exciting. Go out there and look up, everyone. And Bruce's uh, blog that he mentioned, this nice little Q&A, you can find it, of course, at planetary.org, where all of our uh, great blog posts are. Awesome. We move on to this week in space history, 1971. Astronauts first drive a car on the moon with Apollo 15 <laughs> lunar roving vehicle, first one. Dune buggy. Dune buggy. 1984, Svetlana Savitskaya became the first woman to spacewalk. Huh, I'll be darned. Okay. Move on to random space fact! Sorry, I'm kind of excited today. At closest approach for the 2018 opposition, Mars will be 24.31 arc seconds in diameter. Now, Ever since 2003, every opposition, we get the Mars hoax pops up saying the Mars will be as big as the full moon, which, of course, is very, very wrong. But let's figure out how wrong. The full moon has an angular diameter of about half a degree or 1,800 arc seconds. So for the 2018 close approach, the full moon will be about 74 times larger in diameter than the maximum Mars disk size. Yeah, and you, you addressed this in that blog post as well, which I was glad to see. It's so true. All right, we move on to the trivia contest, still talking about Mars, and in this case, the reason why its brightness varies so much from one opposition to another. What is the eccentricity of the Mars orbit, which defines how non-circular it is, basically? How'd we do, Matt? I'm going to go straight to uh, our winner, because you already told me that he had this right, because I'm excited. He's in my old hometown, the place where I lived for uh, 30 years or so, uh, and that's Long Beach, California. Lucas Sabat, or Sabate, uh, he didn't give us the pronunciation, but uh, Lucas said that this eccentricity is 0. 0.0934, which which means what? Uh, it's a... Uh, for those who have taken your analytical geometry, trigonometry kind of stuff, it's how much is your lips squished, to use the non-technical term. <laughs> uh, so how much is your circle squished? And so if you're, if you're not squished, you have an eccentricity of zero, and the farther you get from zero, the more squishy it is. And Mars has a much higher eccentricity than Earth, for example. Well, Lucas, congratulations. You're going to get that Planetary Radio t-shirt and a 200-point itelescope.net astronomy account. We have some other uh, interesting stuff from Tony Knutson in Little Stewartville, Minnesota, up there on Interstate 90. Uh, here's a random space fact for you. He says, if Mars's orbit was the size of a ping pong ball, you could imagine squeezing that ball in a millimeter and a half on the sides, or, you know, if you prefer the top and uh, top and the bottom, which uh, I thought was pretty good. Yeah, that would be <laughs> the equivalent of Mars eccentricity, I take it. I, I don't know how good his uh, math is there, but uh, I'll take his word for it. Uh, Norman Kassoon in the UK, a regular listener and uh, entrant who always has interesting stuff for us. He says, Mars experiences a dramatic change in atmospheric pressure because of its eccentric orbit. Are you Are you familiar with this? Yes. Mars, because of its higher eccentricity, 
it actually varies significantly in how much solar insulation it gets. So how much solar radiation it gets is it's a non-trivial variation, which changes various things on Mars and is much more significant than say for earth where we don't see much variation or other, other factors, particularly the tilt of the earth vastly dominate. Just a couple more of these, uh, Russell Frizzell in Olympia, Washington, along with a bunch of other people, including Zoe Reinertz in Germany and Robert Laporta in Connecticut, uh, they said that uh, the eccentricity of Mars's orbit was a clue for Kepler to the natural laws of planetary motion. In other words, they helped him figure out that uh, stuff goes around other stuff in, in ellipses. All right. Way to go, Mars. Way to help Kepler get a clue. <laughs> <laughs> and then a Couple, a couple of other people, Jordan Tickton, Laura Dodd added, this eccentricity has been changing that uh, uh, one and a half million years or so ago, Earth years, it was pretty close to circular, but it's getting more eccentric every day, just like you and me. <laughs> it is indeed. Uh, and that's <laughs> why we, on very long periods, are getting closer approaches than we did in previous human history. Yeah, it's all in these big, long cycles that are driven by uh, primarily by Jupiter's gravitational influence on Mars. And uh, in line with that, from Robert Klain in Chandler, Arizona, your and Bruce's personal eccentricities are quite endearing and are one of the big reasons I listen to the podcast each week. Oh, I thank you. I, I think. No, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> with that, we are ready to uh, start a new one. All right, can't get enough Mars Close Approach. When will be the next Mars Close Approach when Mars is closer to Earth than in the 2018 Close Approach? When will Mars next be closer to Earth than in 2018? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. And I want to be kind this week to uh, all of the people who hear this program too late to enter the contest. We'll call this an experiment. Maybe we'll make it a regular thing, maybe not. Uh, but uh, since some of you <laughs> will probably be hearing about uh, the Mars opposition and a close approach and the uh, eclipse after it happens, we're going to give you more time to enter the contest this week. How about we move the deadline out two weeks? That means that you will need to get us your entry by Wednesday, August 8th, at 8 a.m. Pacific time, and you will have a chance to win a Planetary Radio t-shirt that you can check out at chopshopstore.com. That's where the Planetary Society store is. You can see all our cool stuff. And a 200-point itelescope.net account from that worldwide network of uh, telescopes that uh, anybody can use. 200-point account is worth a couple hundred bucks uh, U.S. They have a brand-new planning tool uh, that you can see on their site. It, it's very cool. It, it helps everybody find lots of beautiful objects in the night sky and then examine them with the telescopes uh, that are part of the network. So uh, uh, good on your eye telescope. Cool. And with that, I think we're done. All right, everybody. Go out there, look up the night sky, and think if you put a T-shirt on a tank, does it become a tank top? Thank you. And good night. <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> I was kind of proud of that one. I am speechless. I have nothing to add to this one. Yes. Uh, except that it, <laughs> a tank top would be wise to wear uh, currently across much of the United States and the world. So uh, stay cool, Bruce, and uh, all the rest of you as well. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its members around the world. Mary Lou's Bender is our associate producer. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which was arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. I'm Matt Kaplan at Astro. <laughs>